The Behavior of Crowds by Everett Dean Martin Narrated by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes Forward Since the publication of Le Bon's book, The Crowd, little has been added to our knowledge of the mechanisms of crowd behavior. As a practical problem, the habit of crowd-making is daily becoming a more serious menace to civilization. Events are making it more and more clear that, pressing as are certain economic questions, the forces which threaten society are really psychological. Interest in the economic struggle has to a large extent diverted attention from the significance of the problems of social psychology. Social psychology is still a rather embryonic science and this notwithstanding the fact that psychiatry has recently provided us with a method with which we may penetrate more deeply than ever before into the inner sources of motive and conduct. The remedy which I have suggested in Chapter 10 deserves a much more extended treatment than I have given it. It involves one of the great mooted questions of modern philosophical discussion. It is, however, not within the province of this book to enter upon a discussion of the philosophy of humanism. The subject has been thoroughly thrashed over in philosophical journals and in the writings of James, Schiller, Dewey, and others. It is sufficient for my purpose merely to point out the fact that the humanist way of thinking may provide us with just that educational method, which will break up the logical forms in which the crowd mind entrenches itself. Those who expect to find a prescribed formula or ideal scheme of organization as a remedy for our social ills, may feel that the solution to which I have come, namely, a new educational method, is too vague. But the problem of the crowd is really concerned with the things of the mind. And if I am correct in my thesis, that there is a necessary connection between crowd thinking and the various traditional systems of intellectualist, absolutist, and rationalist philosophy, the way out must be through the formation of some such habits of thinking as I have suggested. EDM, New York, October 10th, 1919. 1. The Crowd and the Social Problem of Today Everyone at times feels himself in the grip of social forces over which he has no control. The apparently impersonal nature of these forces has given rise to various mechanistic theories of social behavior. There are those who interpret the events of history as byproducts of economic evolution. Others, more idealistic but determinists, nevertheless, see in the record of human events the working out of a preordained plan. There is a popular notion, often shared by scholars, that the individual and society are essentially irreconcilable principles. The individual is assumed to be by nature an antisocial being. Society, on the other hand, is opposed in principle to all that is personal and private. The demands of society, its welfare and aims, are treated as if they were a tax imposed upon each and every one by something foreign, to the natural will or even the happiness of all. It is as if society as thing in itself could prosper in opposition to the individuals who collectively constitute it. It is needless to say that both the individual and the social, according to such a view, are empty abstractions. The individual is, in fact, a social entity. 
strip him of his social interests, endowments, and habits, and the very feeling of self, or social me, as William James called it, vanishes and nothing is left but a platonic idea and a reflex arc. The social also is nothing else than the manner in which individuals habitually react to one another. Society in the abstract, as a principle opposed to individual existence, has no more reality than that of the grin which Alice in Wonderland sees after the famous Cheshire cat has vanished. It is the mere logical concept of others in general, left leering at us after all the concrete others have been thought away. Much social thinking is of this cat-grin sort. Having abstracted from the thought of self everything that is social, and from the idea of the social all that has to do with concrete persons, the task remains to get pure grin and pure cat together again in such a way that neither shall lose its identity in the other. It is, of course, impossible to reconcile these mutually exclusive abstractions, either in theory or in practice. It is often difficult enough, even with the aid of empirical thinking, to adjust our relations with the other people about us. But on the Cheshire Cat hypothesis, the social problem can never be solved, because it is not a real problem at all. Since the individual is therefore a social being as such, and the social is just a way of acting together, the social problem does not grow out of a conflict between the self and an impersonal social principle. The conflicts are, in fact, clashes among certain individuals and groups of them, or else, and this is a subject to which social psychology has paid insufficient attention, the social struggle is in certain of its phases a conflict within the personal psyche itself. Suppose that the apparently impersonal element in social behavior is not impersonal in fact, but is, for the most part, the result of an impersonal manner of thinking about ourselves. Every psychic fact must really be an act of somebody. There are no ideas without thinkers to think them, no impersonal thoughts or disembodied impulses, no independent truths, no transcendental principles existing in themselves and outside of human heads. Life is everywhere reaction. It is nowhere a mere product or a passive registering of impersonal forces. It is the organism's behavior in the presence of what we call environment. Individual opinions cannot be tossed into a common hat like small coins. Though we may each learn from the others, there is no magic by which our several thoughts can sum themselves up into a common fund of public opinion or super-personal whole which thinks itself. There being no collective head to think it. No matter how many people think and behave as I do, each of us knows only his own thought and behavior. My thought may be about you and what I judge you are thinking, but it is not the same as your thought. To each the social is nil except in so far as he experiences it himself, and to each it is something unique when viewed from within. The uniformity and illusion of identity, in short, the impersonal aspect of social thinking and activity appears only when we try to view social behavior from without. That is, as objectively manifest in the behavior of others. What then is the secret of this impersonal view of the social? Why do we think of ourselves socially in the same impersonal or external way that we think of others? There is an interesting parallel here in the behavior of certain types of mental pathology. There are neurotics who commonly feel that certain aspects of their behavior are really not of their own authorship, 
but come to them as the result of influences acting from without. It was such a phenomenon in part that led psychologists of a generation ago to construct the theory of multiple personality. It is known now that the psychic material, which in these cases appears to be automatic and impersonal, in the sense that it is not consciously willed, is really motivated by unconscious mechanisms. The apparently impersonal behavior of the neurotic is psychologically determined, though unconsciously. May there not be a like unconscious psychic determination of much that is called social behavior? It is my thesis that this is so, and that there are certain types of social behavior which are characterized by unconscious motivation to such a degree that they may be placed in a definite class of psychological phenomena. This group of phenomena I have, following to some extent the terminology of Laban, called the crowd. I wish there were a more exact word, for it is very difficult to use the word crowd in its psychological sense without causing some confusion in the mind of the reader. In ordinary speech, a crowd is any gathering of people. In the writings of Laban, as we shall see, the word has a special meaning, denoting not a gathering of people as such, but a gathering which behaves in a certain way, which may be classified and described psychologically as crowd mentality. Not every gathering of people shows this crowd mentality. It is characteristic which appears under certain circumstances. In this discussion, the word crowd must be understood to mean the peculiar mental condition which sometimes occurs when people think and act together, either immediately where the members of the group are present and in close contact, or remotely as when they affect one another in a certain way through the medium of an organization, a party or sect, the press, etc. The crowd, while it is a social phenomenon, differs greatly from the social as such. People may be social. The family is an example of this, without being a crowd either in thought or action. Again, a crowd, a mob, is an example of this, may be distinctly antisocial if we attach any ethical meaning to the term. Both the individual and society suffer, as we shall see, from the crowd behavior. I know of nothing which today so menaces not only the values of civilization, but also, it is the same thing in other words perhaps, the achievement of personality and true knowledge of self as the growing habit of behaving as crowds. Our society is becoming a veritable babble of gibbering crowds. Not only are mob outbreaks and riots increasing in number, but every interest, patriotic, religious, ethical, political, economic, easily degenerates into a confusion of propagandist tongues, into extravagant partisanship and intemperance. Whatever be the ideal to which we would attain, we find the path of self-culture too slow. We must become army worms, eating our way to the goal by sheer force of numbers. The councils of democracy are conducted on about the psychological level of commercial advertising, and with about the same degree of sincerity. While it cannot be said that the habit of crowd-making is peculiar to our times, other ages too have indulged in it, it does seem that this tendency to crowd-mindedness has greatly increased in recent years. Whether it is temperance or justice or greater freedom, moral excellence or national glory that we desire, whether we happen to be conservatives or radicals, reformers or liberals, we must become a cult, write our philosophy of life in flaming headlines, 
and sell our cause in the market. No matter if we meanwhile surrender every value for which we stand, we must strive to cajole the majority into imagining itself on our side. For only with the majority with us, whoever we are, can we live. It is numbers, not values, that count. Quantity, not quality. Everybody must moral crusade, agitate, press agent, play politics. Everyone is forced to speak as the crowd, think as the crowd, understand as the crowd. The tendency is to smother all that is unique, rare, delicate, secret. If you are to get anywhere in this progressive age, you must be vulgar. You must add to your vulgarity unction. You must take sides upon dilemmas which are but half true. Change the tempo of your music to ragtime. Eat your spiritual food with a knife. Drape yourself in the flag of the dominant party. In other words, you must be 100% crowd man. The effect of all this upon the individual is that he is permitted neither to know nor to belong to himself. He becomes a mere banner-toter. He must hold himself ever in readiness to wiggle-waggle in the perpetual Simon Says Thumbs Up game which his crowd is playing. He spends his days playing a part which others have written for him, loses much of his genuineness and courage and pampers himself with imitation virtues and second-hand truths. Upon the social peace, the effect is equally bad. Unnecessary and meaningless strife is engendered. An idolatry of phrases is enthroned. A silly game of bullying and deception is carried on among contending crowds. National, religious, moral, social. The great truths of patriotism, morality, and religion become hardly more than caricatures. Mere instruments of crowds for putting their rivals on the defensive and securing obeisance from the members of the crowd itself, easily repudiated in the hour of the crowd's victory. The social harmony is menaced by numerous cliques and parties ranging in size all the way from the nation crowd down to the smallest sect, each setting out like a band of buccaneers bent upon nothing but its own dominance and seeking to justify its piratical conduct by time worn platitudes. That which is meant by the cry of the Russian Revolution, all power to the Soviets is peculiar neither to Russian nor to the working class. Such in spirit is the cry of every crowd, for every crowd is psychologically considered a Soviet. The industrial and political danger of the Soviet would amount to little or nothing, were it not for the fact that the modern world is already spiritually Sovietized. The threatened Soviet Republic is hardly more than the practical result of a hundred years of crowd thinking on almost every subject. Whether capitalist or proletarian, reformer or liberal, we have all along been behaving and thinking in Soviet fashion. In almost every important matter in life, we have ignored Emerson's warning that we must rely upon ourselves and have permitted ourselves to behave and think as crowds fastening their labels and dogmas upon our spirits and taking their shibboleths upon our tongues, thinking more of the temporary triumph of our particular sect or party than of the effect of our behavior upon ourselves and others. There is certainly nothing new in the discovery that our social behavior is not what it ought to be. Medieval thinkers were as much aware of the fact as we are, but they dismissed the social problem with the simple declaration of the sinfulness of human nature. 19th century utilitarians felt that the social problem could be solved by more enlightened and more reasonable behavior on the part of individuals. 
recent social psychology, of which the writings of Professor William McDougall are probably the best example, has abandoned the theory that social behavior is primarily governed by reason or by considerations of utility. A better explanation of social phenomena is found in instinct. It is held that the true motives of social behavior are pugnacity, the instinct of self-appreciation or self-debasement of sex, gregariousness, and the like. Each instinct, with its affective emotion, becomes organized through various complex reactions to the social environment and to fairly well-established sentiments. These sentiments are held to be the controlling social forces. As McDougall says, We may say then that, directly or indirectly, the instincts are the prime movers of all human activity, by the conative or impulsive force of some instinct, or of some habit derived from an instinct. Every train of thought, however cold and passionless it may seem, is borne along toward its end, and every bodily activity is initiated and sustained. The instinctive impulses determine the ends of all activities and supply the driving power by which all mental activities are sustained. And all the complex intellectual apparatus of the most highly developed mind is but a means toward those ends, is but the instrument by which these impulses seek their satisfactions. These impulses are the mental forces that maintain and shape all the life of individuals and societies, and in them we are confronted with the central mystery of life and mind and will. This is all very good so far as it goes, but I confess that I am somewhat at loss to know just what it explains so far as crowd behavior is concerned. Do these instincts and sentiments operate the same under all social conditions? Are some of them suppressed by society and forced to seek their satisfaction in roundabout ways? If so, how? Moreover, I fail to find in present-day social psychology any more than in the writings of Herbert Spencer, Sumner, Ward, and others. Any clear distinction between the characteristic behavior of crowds and other forms of social activity? Only the school of Le Bon has shown any definite appreciation of these facts. It is to Le Bon, therefore, in spite of the many and just criticisms of his work, that we must turn for a discussion of the crowd as a problem apart from social psychology in general. Le Bon saw that the mind of the crowd demanded special psychological study, but many of the psychological principles which he used in solving the problem were inadequate to the task. Certain of his conclusions were, therefore, erroneous. Since the close of the 19th century, however, psychology has gained much insight into the secret springs of human activity. Possibly the most significant achievement in the history of this science is Freud's work in analytical psychology. So much light has been thrown upon the unconscious by Freud and other analytical psychologists that psychology in all its branches is beginning to take some of Freud's discoveries into account. Strictly speaking, psychoanalysis is a therapeutic method. It has, however, greatly enriched our knowledge of mental pathology. Thus, much of its data has become indispensable to general psychology and to social psychology in particular. In his book, The Interpretation of Dreams, Freud has shown that there exist, in the wish-fulfilling mechanisms of dream formation, certain definite laws. These laws undoubtedly underlie and determine also many of our crowd ideas, creeds, conventions, and social ideals. In his book, Totem and Taboo, Freud has himself led the way to the application of the analytical psychology, 
to the customs and ideas of primitive groups. I am sure that we shall find as we proceed that with the analytical method we shall gain an entirely new insight into the causes and meaning of the behavior of crowds. 2. How Crowds Are Formed In his well-known work on the psychology of the crowd, LeBon noted the fact that the unconscious plays a large part in determining the behavior of crowds. But he is not clear in his use of the term unconscious. In fact, as Graham Wallace justly points out, his terminology is very loose indeed. LeBon seems to have made little or no attempt to discover in detail the processes of this unconscious. In company with most psychologists of his time, he based his explanation upon the theory of suggestion and imitation. He saw in the unconscious merely a sort of mystical, common humanity, from which he derived his also mystical idea of a common crowd mind, which each individual in the crowd in some unexplained manner shared. He says, The most striking peculiarity presented by a psychological crowd is the following. Whoever be the individual that compose it, however like or unlike be their mode of life, their occupations, their character, or their intelligence, the fact that they have been transformed into a crowd puts them in possession of a sort of collective mind which makes them feel, think, and act in a manner quite different from that in which each individual of them would feel, think, and act, were he in state of isolation. It is easy to prove how much the individual forming part of a crowd differs from the isolated individual, but it is less easy to discover the causes of this difference. To obtain at any rate a glimpse of them, it is necessary in the first place to call to mind the truth established by modern psychology, that unconscious phenomena play an altogether preponderating part, not only in organic life but also in the operations of intelligence. Our conscious acts are the outcome of an unconscious substratum created in the mind in the main by heredity. This substratum consists of innumerable characteristics handed down from generation to generation, which constitute the genius of the race. It is more especially with respect to those unconscious elements which constitute the genius of a race that all the individuals belonging to it resemble each other. It is precisely these general qualities of character governed by forces of which we are unconscious and possessed by the majority of normal individuals of a race in much the same degree. It is precisely these qualities, I say, that in crowds become common property, in the collective mind the intellectual aptitudes of the individuals, and in consequence their individuality are weakened. The heterogeneous is swamped in the homogeneous, and the unconscious qualities obtain the upper hand. It may safely be said, I think, that the assumed impersonal collective mind of the crowd has no existence in a sound psychology. People's minds show, of course, innumerable mutual influences, but they do not fuse and run together. They are in many respects very similar, but similarity is not identity, even when people are crowded together. Our author has doubtless borrowed here rather uncritically from Herbert Spencer's organic conception of society. His later statement, not quoted here, that the alleged merging of the heterogeneous and the homogeneous would logically imply a regression to a lower stage in evolution, is another bit of Spencerian jargon commonly accepted in Le Bon's day. When, however, Graham Wallace in The Great Society states that Le Bon is not himself clear whether he means that crowds have no collective consciousness, 
or that every individual in a crowd is completely unconscious. It seems to me that Wallace is a little unfair. Neither Laban nor the relation of the unconscious to the crowd mind may be dismissed in Wallace's apparently easy manner. Laban has established two points which I think cannot be successfully denied. First, that the crowd is essentially a psychological phenomenon. People behaving differently in a crowd from the way they behave when isolated. And second, that the unconscious has something to do with crowd thinking and acting. Wallace says of Laban, Tard and Laban were Frenchmen brought up on vivid descriptions of the revolution and themselves apprehensive of the spread of socialism. Political movements which were in large part carried out by men conscious and thoughtful, though necessarily ill-informed, seemed therefore to them as they watched them from the outside to be due to the blind and unconscious impulses of masses, incapable both of reflection and of reasoning. There is some truth in this criticism. In spite of the attempt of the famous author of crowd psychology to give us a really scientific explanation of crowd phenomena, his obviously conservative bias robs his work of much of its power to convince. We find here, just as in the case of Gobineau, Nietzsche, Fagway, Conway, and other supporters of the aristocratic idea, an a priori principle of distrust of the common people as such. In many passages, Laban does not sufficiently distinguish between the crowd and the masses. Class and mass are opposed to each other as though, due to their superior reasoning powers, the class were somehow free from the danger of behaving as crowd. This is, of course, not true. Any class may behave and think as a crowd. In fact, it usually does so insofar as its class interests are concerned. Anyone who makes a study of the public mind in America today will find that the phenomena of the crowd mind are not at all confined to movements within the working class or so-called common people. It has long been the habit of conservative writers to identify the crowd with the proletariat, and then to feel that the psychology of the situation could be summed up in the statement that the crowd was simply the creature of passion and blind emotion. The psychology which lies back of such a view if it is psychology rather than class prejudice, is the old intellectualism, which sought to isolate the intellect from the emotional nature and make the true mental life primarily a knowledge affair. The crowd, therefore, since it was regarded as an affair of the emotions, was held to be one among many instances of the natural mental inferiority of the common people, and a proof of their general unfitness for self-government. I do not believe that this emotional theory is the true explanation of crowd behavior. It cannot be denied that people in a crowd become strangely excited. But it is not only in crowds that people show emotion, feeling, instinct, impulse, or the dynamic of all mental life. The crowd doubtless inhibits as many emotions as it releases. Fear is conspicuously absent in battle. Pity in a lynching mob. Crowds are notoriously anesthetic toward the finer values of art, music, and poetry. It may even be argued that the feelings of the crowd are dulled, since it is only the exaggerated, the obvious, the cheaply sentimental which easily moves it. There was a time when insanity was also regarded as excessive emotion. The insane man was one who raved, he was mad. The word crazy still suggests the condition of being out of one's mind that is, driven by irrational emotion. 
Psychiatry would accept no such explanation today. Types of insanity are distinguished, not with respect to the mere amount of emotional excitement they display, but in accordance with the patient's whole psychic functioning. The analyst looks for some mechanism of controlling ideas and their relation to impulses which are operating in the unconscious. So with our understanding of the crowd mind, Lebon is correct in maintaining that the crowd is not a mere aggregation of people. It is a state of mind. A peculiar psychic change must happen to a group of people before they become a crowd. And as this change is not merely a release of emotion, neither is it the creation of a collective mind by means of imitation and suggestion. My thesis is that the crowd mind is a phenomena which should be best classed with dreams, delusions, and the various forms of automatic behavior. The controlling ideas of the crowd are the result neither of reflection nor of suggestion, but are akin to what, as we shall see later, the psychoanalysts term complexes. The crowd self, if I may speak of it in this way, is analogous in many respects to compulsion neurosis, somnambulism, or paranoiac episode. Crowd ideas are fixations. They are always symbolic. They are always related to something repressed in the unconscious. They are what Dr. Adler would call fictitious guiding lines. There is a sense in which all our thinking consists of symbol and fiction. The laws, measurements, and formulas of science are all, as it were, shorthand devices. Instruments for relating ourselves to reality rather than copies of the real. The laws, measurements, and formulas of science are all, as it were, shorthand devices, instruments for relating ourselves to reality rather than copies of the real. The truth of these working ideas is demonstrated in the satisfactoriness of the results to which they lead us. If by means of them we arrive at desired and desirable adaptations to and within our environment, we say they are verified. If, however, no such verification is reached, or the result reached flatly contradicts our hypothesis, the same thinker holds his conclusions in abeyance, revises his theories, or candidly gives them up and clings to the real as empirically known. Suppose now that a certain hypothesis or fiction, instead of being an instrument for dealing with external reality, is unconsciously designed as a refuge from the real. Suppose it is a symbolic compromise among conflicting desires in the individual's unconscious of which he cannot rid himself. Suppose it is a disguised expression of motives which the individual as a civilized being cannot admit to his own consciousness. Suppose it is a fiction necessary to keep up one's ego consciousness or self-appreciative feeling without which either he or his world would instantly become valueless. In these latter cases, the fiction is not and cannot be without outside help, modified by the reality of experience. The complex of ideas becomes a closed system, a world in and of itself. Conflicting facts of experience are discounted and denied by all the cunning of an insatiable, unconscious will. The fiction then gets itself substituted for the true facts of experience. The individual has lost the function of the real. He no longer admits its disturbing elements as correctives. He has become mentally unadjusted, pathological. Most healthy people doubtless would on analysis reveal themselves as nourishing fictions of this sort, more or less innocent in their effects. 
It is possible that it is by means of such things that the values of living are maintained for us all. But with the healthy, these fictions either hover about the periphery of our known world as shadowy and elusive inhabitants of the inaccessible, or else they are socially acceptable as religious convention. Race, pride, ethical values, personal ambition, class honor, etc. The fact that so much of the ground of our valuations, at least so far as these affect our self-appreciation, is explicable by psychologists as pathological in origin need not startle us. William James, in his Varieties of Religious Experience, you'll remember, took the ground that in judging of batters of this kind, it is not so much by their origins, even admitting the pathological as a cause, but by their fruits that we shall know them. There are fictions which are neither innocent nor socially acceptable in their effects on life and character. Many of our crowd phenomena belong, like paranoia, to this last class. As I shall try to show later, the common confusion of the crowd with society is an error. The crowd is a social phenomena only in the sense that it affects a number of persons at the same time. As I have indicated, people may be highly social without becoming a crowd. They may meet, mingle, associate in all sorts of ways, and organize and cooperate for the sake of common ends. In fact, the greater part of our social life might normally have nothing in common with crowd behavior. Crowd behavior is pseudo-social, if social organizations be regarded as a means to the achievement of realizable goods. The phenomena which we call the crowd mind, instead of being the outgrowth of the directly social, are social only in the sense that all mental life has social significance. They are rather the result of forces hidden in the personal and unconscious psyche of the members of the crowd, forces which are merely released by social gatherings of a certain sort. Let us notice what happens in a public meeting as it develops into a crowd, and see if we can trace some of the steps of the process. Picture a large meeting hall fairly well filled with people. Notice, first of all, what sort of interest it is, which as a rule will most easily bring an assemblage of people together. It need not necessarily be a matter of great importance, but it must be something which catches and challenges attention without great effort. It is most commonly, therefore, an issue of some sort. I've seen efforts made in New York to hold mass meetings to discuss affairs of the very greatest importance, and I've noted the fact that such efforts usually fail to get out more than a handful of specially interested persons. No matter how well advertised, if the subject to be considered happens not to be of a controversial nature. I call special attention to this fact because later we shall see that it is this element of conflict, directly or indirectly, which plays an overwhelming part in the psychology of every crowd. It is the element of contest which makes baseball so popular. A debate will draw a large crowd than a lecture. One of the secrets of the large attendance of the forum is the fact that discussion, talking back, is permitted and encouraged. Evangelist Sunday undoubtedly owes the great attendance at his meetings in no small degree to the fact that he is regularly expected to abuse someone. If the matter to be considered is one about which there is keen partisan feeling and popular resentment, if it lends itself to the spectacular personal achievement of one whose name is known, especially in the face of opposition or difficulties, 
or if the occasion permits of resolutions of protests, of the airing of wrongs, of denouncing abuse of some kind, or of casting statements of external principles in the teeth of enemies of humanity. And however trivial the occasion, we may count on it that our assembly will be well attended. Now let us watch the proceedings. The next thing in importance is the speaker. Preferably he shall be an old war horse, a victor in many battles, and this for a psychological reason we shall soon examine. Whoever he is, every speaker with any skill knows just when this state of mind, which we call crowd, begins to appear. My work has provided me with rather unusual opportunities for observing this sort of thing. As a regular lecturer, and also as director of the Forum, which meets three nights a week in the Great Hall of Cooper Union, I have found that the intellectual interest, however intense, and the development of the crowd spirit are accompanied by wholly different mental processes. Let me add in passing that the audiences which gather at Cooper Union are, on the whole, the most alert, sophisticated, and reflective that I have ever known. I doubt if in any large popular assembly in America general discussion is carried on with such habitual seriousness. When on rare occasions the spirit of the crowd begins to manifest itself, and one can always detect its beginnings before the audience is consciously aware of it, I have noticed that discussion instantly ceases and people begin merely to repeat their creeds and hurl cant phrases at one another. All then is changed, though subtly. There may be laughter as at first, but it is different. Before it was humorous and playful, now there is a note of hostility in it. It is laughter at someone or something. Even the applause is changed. It is more frequent. It is more vigorous. And instead of showing mere approval of some sentiment, it becomes a means of showing the numerical strength of a group of believers of some sort. It is as if those who applaud were unconsciously seeking to reveal to themselves and others that there is a multitude on their side. I have heard the most exciting and controversial subjects discussed and seen the discussion listened to with the intensest difference of opinion. And all without the least crowd phenomena. So long as the speaker refrained from indulging in generalities or time-worn forms of expression, so long as the matter discussed requires close and sustained effort of attention, and the method of treatment is kept free from anything which savors of ritual, even the favorite dogmas of popular belief may be discussed. Though the interest be intense, it will remain critical, and the audience does not become a crowd. But let the most trivial bit of bathos be expressed in rhythmical cadences and in platitudinous terms and the most intelligent audience will react as a crowd. Crowd-making oratory is almost invariably platitudinous. In fact, we think as a crowd only in platitudes, propaganda, ritual, dogma, and symbol. Crowd ideas are ready-made. They possess finality and universality. They are fixed. They do not develop. They are ends in themselves. Like the obsessions of the insane, there is a deadly inevitability in the logic of them. They are compulsions. During the time of my connection with the Cooper Union Forum, we have not had a crowd of demonstration in anything more than an incipient form. The best laboratory for the study of such a phenomena is the political party convention, the mass meeting, or the religious revival. The orators who commonly hold forth at such gatherings know intuitively the functional value of bathos, ridicule, and platitude 
And it is upon such knowledge that they base the success of their careers in getting the crowd. The noisy demonstrations, which it has of late become the custom to stage as part of the rigmarole of a national party convention, have been cited as crowning examples of the stupidity and excess of crowd enthusiasm. But this is a mistake. Anyone who has from the gallery witnessed one or more of these mock stampedes will agree that they are exhibitions of endurance rather than of genuine enthusiasm or of true crowd-mindedness. They are so obviously manipulated and so deliberately timed that they can hardly be regarded as true crowd movements at all. They are chiefly interesting as revelations of the general insincerity of the political life of this republic. True crowd behavior requires an element of spontaneity, at least on the part of the crowd. And we have abundant examples of this in public meetings of all sorts. As the audience becomes crowd, the speaker's cadence becomes more marked, his voice more oracular, his gestures more emphatic. His message becomes a recital of great abstract principles. The purely obvious is held up as transcendental. Interest is kept upon just those aspects of things which can be grasped with the least effort by all. Emphasis is laid upon those thought processes in which there is the greatest natural uniformity. The general, abstract, and superficial come to be exalted at the expense of that which is unique and personal. Forms of thought are made to stand as objects of thinking. It is clear that such meaning as there is in those abstract names, justice, right, liberty, peace, glory, destiny, etc., or in such general phases as brotherly love, grand and glorious, public weal, common humanity, and many others, must vary with each one's personal associations. Popular orators deal only with the greatest common denominator of the meaning of these terms. That is, only those elements which are common to the associations of all. Now, the common associations of words and phrases of this general nature are very few, hardly more than the bare sound of the words, plus a vague mental attitude or feeling of expectancy, a mere turning of the eyes of the mind, as it were, in a certain direction into empty space. When, for instance, I try now to leave out of the content of justice all my personal associations and concrete experiences, I can discover no remaining content beyond a sort of grand emptiness, with the intonations of the word booming in my auditory centers like the ringing of a distant bell. As public property, the words are only a sort of worn banknote, symbols of many meanings and intentions like my own, deposited in individual minds. Interesting as these personal deposits are, and much as we are mutually interested by them and moved to harmonious acting and speaking, it is doubtful if more than the tiniest fragment of what we each mean by justice can ever be communicated. The word is a convenient instrument in adjusting our conduct to that of others, and when such adjustment seems to meet with mutual satisfaction, we say, that is just. But the just thing is always a concrete situation. And the general term justice is simply a combination of sounds used to indicate the class of things we call just. In itself, it is but a form with the content left out. And so with all other such abstractions. Now, if attention can be directed to this imaginary and vague meaning for everybody, which is really the meaning for nobody, and so directed that the associations with the unique impersonal experience are blocked, these abstractions will occupy the whole field of consciousness 
the mind will yield to any connection which is made among them almost automatically. As conscious attention is cut away from the psyche as a whole, the objects upon which it is centered will appear to have a reality of their own. They become a closed system, perfectly logical it may be in itself, but with the fatal logic commonly found in paranoia, the fiction may become more real than life itself. It may be substituted while the spell is on for the world of actual experience. And just as the manifest content of a dream is, according to Freud, the condensed and distorted symbol of latent dream thoughts and desires in the unconscious, so in the case we are discussing, the unconscious invests these abstract terms with its own peculiar meanings. They gain a tremendous, though undefined, importance and an irresistible compelling power. Something like the process I have described occurs when the crowd appears. People are translated to a different world, that is, a different sense of the real. The speaker is transfigured to their vision. His words take on a mysterious importance, something tremendous, eternal, superhuman is at stake. Commonplace jokes become irresistibly amusing. Ordinary truths are wildly applauded. Dilemmas stand clear with all middle ground brushed away. No statement now needs qualification. All thought of compromise is abhorrent. Nothing now must intervene to rob these moments of their splendid intensity. As James once said of drunkenness, everything is just utterly utter. They who are not for us are against us. The crowd mind consists, therefore, first of all, of a disturbance of the function of the real. The crowd is the creature of belief. Every crowd has its peculiar illusions, ideals, dreams. It maintains its existence as a crowd just so long as these crowd ideas continue to be held by practically all the members of the group. So long, in fact, as such ideas continue to hold attention and assent to the exclusion of ideas and facts which contradict them. I am aware of the fact that we could easily be led aside at this point into endless metaphysical problems. It is not our purpose to enter upon a discussion of the question, what is the real world? The problem of the real is by no means so simple as it appears, to common sense. Common sense has, however, in practical terms, its own criteria, and beyond these it is not necessary for us to now stray. The illusions of the crowd are almost never illusions in the psychological sense. They are not false perceptions of the objects of sense. They are rather akin to the delusions and fixed ideas commonly found in paranoia. The man in the street does not ordinarily require the technique either of metaphysics or of psychiatry in order to characterize certain individuals as crazy. A crazy man is simply unadjustable in his speech and conduct. His ideas may be real to him, just as the colorblind man's sensation of color may be as real as those of normal people, but they won't work, and that is sufficient. It is not so easy to apply this criterion of the real to our crowd ideas. Social realities are not so well ordered as the behavior of the forces of nature. Things moral, religious, and political are constantly in the making. The creative role which we all play here is greater than elsewhere in our making of reality. When most of our neighbors are motivated by certain ideas, those ideas become part of the social environment to which we must adjust ourselves. In this sense, they are real, however crazy. 
Every struggle group and faction in society is constantly striving to establish its ideas as controlling forces in the social reality. The conflicts among ideals are therefore, in a sense, conflicts within the real. Ideas and beliefs which seek their verification in the character of the results to which they lead may point to a very great change in experience. And so long as the believer takes into account the various elements with which he has to deal, he has not lost his hold upon reality. But when one's beliefs or principles become ends in themselves, when by themselves they seem to constitute an order of being which is more interesting than fact, when the believer saves this faith only by denying or ignoring the things which contradict him, when he strives not to verify his ideas but to vindicate them, the ideas so held are pathological. The obsessions of the paranoiac are of this sort. We shall see later that these ideas have a meaning, though the conscious attention of the patient is systematically diverted from that meaning. Crowd ideas are similar. The reasons why their pathology is not more evident is the fact that they are simultaneously entertained by so great a number of people. There are many ideas in which our faith is sustained chiefly by the knowledge that everyone about us also believes them. Belief on such ground has commonly been said to be due to imitation or suggestion. These do play a large part in determining all our thinking, but I can see no reason why they should be more operative in causing the crowd mind than in other social situations. In fact, the distinctive phenomena which I have called crowd ideas clearly show that other causes are at work. Among civilized people, social relationships make severe demands upon the individual. Primitive impulses, unchecked eroticism, tendencies to perversions, and antisocial demands of the ego, which are in us all, are constantly inhibited, resisted, controlled, and diverted to socially acceptable ends. The savage in us is repressed. His demands are so habitually denied that we learn to keep him down, for the most part, without conscious effort. We simply cease to pay attention to his gnawing desires. We become decently respectable members of society largely at the expense of our aboriginal nature. But the primitive in us does not really die. It asserts itself harmlessly in dreams. Psychoanalysis has revealed the fact that every dream is the realization of some desire, usually hidden from our conscious thought by our habitual repression. For this reason, the dream work consists of symbols. The great achievement of Freud is the technique which enables the analyst to interpret this symbolism so that his own unconscious thought and desire are made known to the subject. The dream is harmless and is normally utilized by the unconscious ego because during sleep we cannot move. If one actually did the things he dreamed, a thing which happens in various somnambulisms, the dream would become anything but harmless. Every psychosis is really a dramatized dream of this sort. Now, as it is the social which demands the repression of our primitive impulses, it is to be expected that the unconscious would on certain occasions make use of this same social in order to realize its primitive desires. There are certain mental abnormalities, such as dementia, precox, in which the individual behaves in a wholly antisocial manner, simply withdrawing into himself. In the crowd, the primitive ego achieves its wish by actually gaining the assent and support of a section of society. The immediate social environment is all pulled in the same direction as the unconscious desire. 
A similar unconscious impulse motivates each member of the crowd. It is as if all at once an unspoken agreement were entered into whereby each member might let himself go, on condition that he approved the same thing and all the rest. Of course, such a thing cannot happen consciously. Our normal social consciousness would cause us each to resist, let us say, an exhibition of cruelty in our neighbors and also in ourselves. The impulse must therefore be disguised. The term unconscious in the psychology of the crowd does not, of course, imply that the people in the crowd are not aware of the fact that they are lynching a Negro or demanding the humiliation or extermination of certain other fellows. Everybody is perfectly aware of what is being said and done. Only the moral significance of the thing has changed. The deed or sentiment, instead of being disapproved, appears to be demanded by moral principle, by the social welfare, by the glory of the state, etc. What is unconscious is the fact that the social is actually being twisted around into giving approval of the things which it normally forbids. Every crowd considers that it is vindicating some sacred principle. The more bloody and destructive the acts to which it is impelled, the more moral are its professions. Under the spell of the crowd's logic, certain abstract principles lead inevitably to the characteristic forms of crowd behavior. They seem to glorify such acts, to make heroes and martyrs of those who lead in their performance. The attention of everyone is first centered on the abstract and universal, as I have indicated. The repressed wish then unconsciously gives the formulas which the crowd professes a meaning different from that which appears, yet unconsciously associated with it. This unconscious meaning is, of course, an impulse to act, but the motive professed is not the real motive. Normally, our acts and ideas are corrected by our social environment. But in a crowd, our test of the real fails us, because since the attention of all near us is directed in the same way as our own, the social environment for our time fails to check us. As William James said, the sense that anything we think is unreal can only come when that thing is contradicted by some other thing of which we think. Any object which remains uncontradicted is ipso facto believed and posited as absolute reality. Our immediate social environment is all slipping along with us. It no longer contradicts the thing we want to believe and unconsciously want to do. As the uncontradicted idea is for the time reality, so it is a motor impulse. The only normal reason why we do not act immediately upon any one of our ideas is that action is inhibited by ideas of a contradictory nature. As crowd, therefore, we find ourselves moving in a fictitious system of ideas uncritically accepted as real. Not as in dreams realizing our hidden wishes, merely in imagination but also impelled to act them out in much the way that the psychoneurotic is impelled to act out the fixed ideas which are really the symbols of his suppressed wish. In other words, a crowd is a device for indulging ourselves in a kind of temporary insanity by all going crazy together. Of the several kinds of crowds, I have selected for our discussion the mass meeting because we are primarily interested in the ideas which dominate the crowd. The same essential psychological elements are also found in the street crowd or mob. Serious mob outbreaks seldom occur without mass meetings, oratory, and propaganda. Sometimes, as in the case of the French Revolution and of the rise of the Soviets in Russia, the mass meetings are held in streets and public places. 
Sometimes, as for instance the crowds in Berlin when Germany precipitated the World War, a long period of deliberate cultivation of such crowd ideas as happened to be advantageous to the state precedes. There are instances such as the Frank case, which brought unenviable fame to Georgia when no mass meeting seems to have been held. It is possible that in this instance, however, certain newspapers and also the trial, which, as I remember, was held in a theater and gave an ambitious prose-cutting attorney opportunity to play the role of mob leader, served the purpose of the mass meeting. The series of outbreaks in New York and other cities shortly after the war between the socialists and certain returned soldiers seem to have first occurred quite unexpectedly, as do the customary Negro lynchings in the South. In each case, I think it will be found that the complex of crowd ideas has been previously built up in the unconscious. A deep-seated antagonism had been unconsciously associated with the self-appreciative feelings of a number of individuals, all of which found justification in the consciousness of these persons in the form of devotion to principle, loyalty, moral enthusiasm, etc. I suspect that under many of our professed principles there lurk elements of unconscious sadism and masochism. All that is then required is an occasion, some casual incident, which will so direct the attention of a number of these persons that they provide one another temporarily with a congenial social environment. In the South, this mob complex is doubtless formed out of race pride, certain unconscious eroticism, and will to power, which unfortunately has too abundant opportunity to justify itself as moral indignation. With the returned soldiers, the unconscious desires were often rather thinly disguised. Primitive impulses to violence, which had been aroused and hardly satisfied by the war. A wish to exhibit themselves, which found its opportunity in the knowledge that their lawlessness would be applauded in certain influential quarters. A dislike of the nonconformist, the foreign and the unknown, which took the outward form of a not wholly unjustifiable resentment toward the party which had to all appearances unpatriotically opposed our entrance into the war. Given a psychic situation of this nature, the steps by which it leads to mob violence are much alike in all cases. Altogether, they simply amount to a process of like direction of the attention of a sufficient number of persons. So affected as to produce a temporary social environment in which the unconscious impulses may be released with mutual approval. The presence of the disliked object or person gains general attention. At first there is only curiosity, then amusement. There is a bantering of crude witticisms, then ridicule. Soon the joking turns to insults. There are angry exclamations. A blow is struck. There's a sudden rush, the blow being the act which the members of the crowd each unconsciously wished to do, gains general approval. It is a blow for the righteousness, a cause appears. Casually, associated persons at once become a group, brought together, of course, by their interest in vindicating the principles at stake. The mob finds itself suddenly doing things which its members did not know they had ever dreamed of. Different as this process apparently is from that by which a meeting is turned into a crowd by an orator, I think it will be seen that the two are essentially alike. Thus far we have been considering crowd movements which are local and temporary, casual gatherings which, having no abiding reason for continued association, 
soon dissolve into their individual elements. Frequently, after participating in such a movement, the individual, on returning to his habitual relations, comes too. He wonders what the affair was all about. In the light of his reestablished control ideas, he will call it reason. The unconscious impulses are again repressed. He may look with shame and loathing upon yesterday's orgy, acts which he would ordinarily disapprove in his neighbors, he now disapproves in himself. If the behavior of the crowd has not been particularly atrocious and inexcusable to ordinary consciousness, the reaction is less strong. The voter after the political campaign merely loses interest. The convert in the revival backslides. The striker returns to work and is soon absorbed by the daily routine of his task. The fiery patriot, after the war, is surprised to find that his hatred of the enemy is gradually waning. Electors who have been swept by a wave of enthusiasm for reform and have voted for a piece of ill-considered restrictive legislation easily lapse into indifference and soon look with unconcern or amusement upon violations of their own enactments. There is a common saying that the public has a short memory. Pick up an old newspaper and read about the great movements and causes which were only a short time ago stirring the public mind. Many of them are now dead issues. But they were not answered by argument. We simply got over them. Not all crowd movements, however, are local and temporary. There are passing moments of crowd experience which are often too sweet to lose. The lapse into everyday realism is like falling from grace. The crowd's state of mind strives often to keep itself in countenance by perpetuating the peculiar social psychic conditions in which it can operate. There are certain forms of the ego consciousness which are best served by the fictions of the crowd. An analogy here is found in paranoia, where the individual's morbid fixed ideas are really devices for the protection of his self-esteem. The repressed infantile psyche which exists in us all and in certain neurotics turns back and attaches itself to the image of the parent, finds also in the crowd a path for expression. It provides a perpetual interest in keeping the crowd state alive. Notice how invariably former students form alumni associations and returned soldiers at once affect permanent organizations. Persons who have been converted in one of Mr. Sunday's religious campaigns do the same thing. Indeed, there are associations of all sorts growing out of these exciting moments in people's common past experience, the purpose of which is mutually to recall the old days and aid one another in keeping alive the enlarged self-feeling. In addition to this, society is filled with what might be called struggle groups, organized for the survival and dominance of similarly constituted or situated people. Each group has its peculiar interests, economic, spiritual, racial, etc., and each such interest is a mixture of conscious and unconscious purposes. These groups become sects, cults, partisan movements, class struggles. They develop propaganda, ritual, orthodoxies, dogma, all of which are hardly anything more than stereotyped systems of crowd ideas. These systems differ from those of the neurosis in that the former are less idiosyncratic, but they undoubtedly perform much the same function. The primary aim of every such crowd is to keep itself together as a crowd. Hardly less important is the desire of its members to dominate over all outsiders. 
The professed purpose is to serve some cause or principle of universal import. Thus the crowd idealizes itself as an end, makes sanctities of its own survival values, and holds up its ideals to all men, demanding that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Which is to say that the crowd believes in its own future supremacy, the members of the group knowing that such a belief has survival value. This principle is used by every politician in predicting that his party is bound to win at the next election. Hence, the crowd is a device by which the individual's right may be baptized righteousness in general, and this personality, by putting on impersonality, may rise again to new levels of self-appreciation. He belongs to something, something glorious and deathless. He himself may be but a miserable clod, but the glory of his crowd reflects upon him. Its expected triumph he already shares. It gives him back his lost sense of security. As a good crowd man, true believer, loyal citizen, devoted member, he has regained something of his early innocence. In other members, he has new brothers and sisters. In the finality of his crowd faith, there is escape from responsibility and further search. He is willing to be commanded. He is a child again. He has transferred his repressed infantilism from the lost family circle to the crowd. There's a very real sense in which the crowd stands to his emotional life in loco parentis. It is to be expected, therefore, that wherever possible, the crowd's state of mind will be perpetuated. Every sort of device will be used to keep the members of the crowd from coming too. In almost every organization and social relationship, there will be a tendency on part of the unconscious to behave as crowd. Thus, permanent crowds exist on every hand, especially wherever political, moral, or religious ideas are concerned. The general and abstract character of these ideas makes them easily accessible instruments for justifying and screening the unconscious purpose. Moreover, it is in just those aspects of our social life where repression is greatest that crowd thinking is most common. For it is by means of such thinking and behavior that the unconscious seeks evasions and finds it necessary compensations. The modern man has in the printing press a wonderfully effective means for perpetuating crowd movements and keeping great masses of people constantly under the sway of certain crowd ideas. Every crowd group has its magazines, press agents, and special literature with which it continually harangues its members and possible converts. Many books, and especially certain works of fiction of the bestseller type, are clearly reading mob phenomena. But the leader in crowd thinking par excellence is the daily newspaper. With few exceptions, our journals emit hardly anything but crowd ideas. These great molders of public opinion reveal every characteristic of the vulgar mob orator. The character of the writing commonly has the standards and prejudices of the man in the street. And lest this man's ego consciousness be offended by the sight of anything highbrow, that is, anything indicating that there may be a superior intelligence or finer appreciation than his own. Newspaper democracy demands that everything more exalted than the level of the lowest cranial altitude be left out. The average result is a deluge of sensational scandal, class prejudice, and special pleading clumsily disguised with a saccharine smear of the cheapest moral platitude. Consequently, the thinking of most of us is carried on chiefly in the form of crowd ideas. 
a sort of public meeting self is developed in the consciousness of the individual, which dominates the personality of all but the reflective few. We editorialize and press agent ourselves in our inmost musings. Public opinion is manufactured just as brick are made. Possibly a slightly better knowledge of mechanical engineering is required for making public opinion, but the process is the same. Both can be stamped out in the quantity required and delivered anywhere to order. Our thinking on most important subjects today is as little original as the mental processes of the men who write and the machines which print the pages we read and repeat as our own opinions. Thomas Carlyle was never more sound than when railing at this paper age, and paper, he wisely asked us to remember, is made of old rags. Older writers, who saw the ragged throngs in the streets, were led to identify the mob or crowd with the tattered, illiterate populace. Our mob today is no longer merely tramping in the streets. We have it at the breakfast table, in the subway, alike in shop and boudoir and office, wherever, in fact, the newspaper goes. And the raggedness is not exterior, nor is the mob confined to the class of the ill-clad and the poor. The raggedness and tawdriness have now become spiritual, a universal presence entering into the fabric of nearly all our mental processes. We have now reached a point from which we can look back over the ground we have traversed and note the points of difference between our view and the well-known theory of Laban. The argument of the latter is as follows. 1. From the standpoint of psychology, the crowd, as the term is here defined, is not merely a group of people, it is the appearance within such a group of a special mental condition, or crowd mind. Two, the sentiments and ideas of all the persons in the gathering take one and the same direction. Three, conscious personality vanishes. Four, a collective mind is formed. This is Laban's law of the mental unity of crowds. Five, this collective mind consists in the main of general qualities of character, which are our common racial inheritance. It is an unconscious substratum which in the crowd becomes uppermost, dominating over the unique personal consciousness. Six, three causes determine the characteristics of the crowd mind. A, from purely numerical considerations, the individual acquires a sentiment of invincible power which encourages him in an unrestrained yielding to his instincts. B, contagion or imitation. And C, hypnotic suggestion causes the individuals in the crowd to become Slaves of the unconscious activities of the spinal cord. 7. The resulting characteristics of the crowd are a. A descent of several rungs in the ladder of civilization. b. A general intellectual inferiority as compared with the isolated individual. c. Loss of moral responsibility. d. Impulsiveness. e. Credulity. f. Exaggeration. G. Intolerance. H. Blind obedience to the leader of the crowd. And I. A mystical emotionalism. 8. The crowd is finely and somewhat inconsistently treated by Laban as being identical with the masses, the common people, the herd. Without pausing to review the criticisms of this argument, which were made at the beginning of our discussion, our own view may be summarized as follows. 1. The crowd is not the same as the masses, or any class or gathering of people as such, but is a certain mental condition which may occur simultaneously to people in any gathering or association. 
Two, this condition is not a collective mind. It is a release of repressed impulses, which is made possible because certain controlling ideas have ceased to function in the immediate social environment. Three, this modification in the immediate social environment is the result of mutual concessions on the part of persons whose unconscious impulses to do a certain forbidden thing are similarly disguised as sentiments, which meet with conscious moral approval. For such a general disguising of the real motive is a characteristic phenomena of dreams and of mental pathology, and occurs in the crowd by fixing the attention of all present upon the abstract in general. Attention is thus held diverted from the individual's personal associations, permitting these associations and their accompanying impulses to function unconsciously. 5. The abstract ideas so entertained become symbols of meanings which are unrecognized. They form a closed system, like the obsessions of the paranoiac, and as the whole group are thus moved in the same direction. The compulsory logic of these ideas moves forward without those social checks which normally keep us within bounds of the real. Hence, acting and thinking in the crowd becomes stereotyped and ceremonial. Individuals move together like automatons. 6. As the unconscious chiefly consists of that part of our nature which is habitually repressed by the social, and as there is always, therefore, an unconscious resistance to this repressive force, it follows that the crowd state, like the neurosis, is a mechanism of escape and of compensation. It also follows that the crowd spirit will occur most commonly in reference to just those social norms where repression is greatest in matters political, religious, and moral. 7. The crowd mind is then not a mere excess of emotion on the part of people who have abandoned reason. Crowd behavior is in a sense psychopathic and has many elements in common with somnambulism, the compulsion neurosis, and even paranoia. 8. Crowds may be either temporary or permanent in their existence. Permanent crowds, with the aid of the press, determine in greater or less degree the mental habits of nearly everyone. The individual moves through his social world like a popular freshman on a college campus who is to be spiked by one or another fraternity competing for his membership. A host of crowds standing for every conceivable cause and ideal hover constantly about him, ceaselessly screaming their propaganda into his ears, bullying and cajoling him pushing and crowding and denouncing one another, and forcing all willy-nilly to line up and take sides with them upon issues and dilemmas which represent the real convictions of nobody. 3. The Crowd and the Unconscious Throughout the discussion thus far, I have been making repeated reference to the psychology of the unconscious, without going into any detail more than was necessary. Let us take a closer look at some of Freud's discoveries. In this way, what Brill would call the psychogenesis of certain characteristic ideas and practices of crowds will be, I think, made clear. Up to this point, we have dealt generally with those mental processes by which the crowd is formed. There are certain traits, tendencies, ways of thinking which crowds so uniformly display that one is justified in want of other explanation and assuming them to be unconsciously determined. 
The remarkable blindness of our organized crowds to the most obvious of their own performances is so common as to be the regularly expected thing. That is, of crowds other than our own. Long and extensive operations may be carried on for years by crowds whose members repeatedly declare that such things are not being done. The way in which a nation will carefully prepare for war, gradually organizing its whole life on military basis with tremendous cost and effort, all the while declaring that it is interested only in peace, denying its warlike intentions, and even in the moment of picking a quarrel with its neighbors, declare to all the world that it had been wantonly and unexpectedly attacked, is all a matter of general comment. The American Colonists during the decade before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, of course, had no conscious thought of separating from Great Britain. Almost to the very last, they professed their loyalty to the king. But looking back now, it is clear that independence was the motive all along, and doubtless could not have been achieved more opportunely or with greater finesse if it had been deliberately planned from the start. The Hebrew scriptures contain a story which illustrates the aspect of crowd behavior everywhere. The children of Israel in bondage in Egypt merely wished to go out in the wilderness for a day or so to worship their God. All they asked was religious liberty. How unjust of the authorities to assume that they were planning to run away from their masters. You will remember that at the last moment they incidentally borrow some jewelry from their Egyptian neighbors. Of course, they will pay it back after their little religious holiday, but later a most unforeseen thing happens to that jewelry scandalous thing. It is made into an idol. Does it require that one be a psychologist to infer that it was the unconscious intention all along to use this metal for just that? The first good chance they had, and that too, notwithstanding repeated prohibitions of idolatry? The motive for borrowing the jewelry is evident. Certain crowd movements in America today marked evidence of this unconscious motivation. Notice how both the radical and reactionary elements behave when, as is frequently the case with both, the crowd spirit comes over them. Certain radicals, who are fascinated with the idea of the Russian Revolution, are still proclaiming sentiments of human brotherhood, peace, and freedom, while unconsciously they are doing just what their enemies accuse them of, playing with the welcome ideas of violence, class war, and proletarian dictatorship. And conservative crowds, while ostensibly defending American traditions and ideals against destructive foreign influence, are with their own hands daily desecrating many of the finest things which America has given to the world in its struggle of a more than a century for freedom and justice. Members of each crowd, while blissfully unaware of the incompatibility of their own motives and professions, have no illusions about those of the counter-crowd. Each crowd sees in the professions of its antagonist convincing proof of the insincerity and hypocrisy of the other side. To the student of social philosophy, both are right and both wrong. All propaganda is lies, and every crowd is a deceiver. But its first and worst deception is that of itself. The self-deception is a necessary step in crowd formation and is a sine qua non of becoming a crowd. It is only necessary for members of a crowd to deceive themselves and one another for the crowd mind to function perfectly. I doubt if they are often successful in deceiving anybody else. It was this common crowd phenomena of self-deception which led Gobineau and Nietzsche 
to the conclusion that the common people are liars. But as has been said, the crowd is by no means peculiar to the working class. Some of its features are exhibited these days among employers, lawmakers, and the well-to-do classes. This deception is moreover not really conscious and deliberate. If men deliberately set about to invent lies to justify their behavior, I have little doubt that most of them would be clever enough to conjure up something a little more plausible. These naive and threadbare hypocrisies of crowds are a commonplace mechanism of the unconscious. It is interesting to note that the delusions of the paranoiac likewise deceive no one but himself, yet within themselves form a perfectly logical a priori system. They also serve the well-understood purpose, like that of crowd ideas, of keeping their possessor in a certain fixed relation toward portions of his own psychic material. As Brill says, there are compromise formations. Those who have read Freud's little book, Delusion and Dream, an analysis of a psychological romance written by Wilhelm Jensen, will recall how extensive a fabric of plausibilities a delusion may build up in its defense in order, at the same time, to satisfy a repressed wish and keep the true meaning of the subject's acts and thoughts from conscious attention. In the story which Freud has here taken as his subject for study, a young student of archaeology has apparently conquered all adolescent erotic interest and has devoted himself wholeheartedly to his science. While at the ruins of ancient Pompeii, he finds a bas relief containing the figure of a young woman represented in the act of walking a with peculiar grace, a cast of this figure he brings home. His interest is curiously aroused. At first, this interest appears to be scientific only, then aesthetic and historical. Finally, he builds up about it a complete romance. He becomes restless and very much of a misogynist, and is driven, he knows not why, again to the ruins. Here, he actually meets the object of his dreams in the solitude of the excavated city. He allows himself to believe that the once-living model of his treasured bas-relief has come again to life. For days, he meets and talks with the girl, living all the while in a world of complete unreality, until she finally succeeds in revealing herself as the young woman who lives next door to him. It also appears that in their childhood, he and this girl had been playmates and that in spite of all his conscious indifference to her, his unconscious interest was the source of his interest in the bas relief and the motive which led him to return to Pompeii, where he unconsciously expected to find her. The interesting thing about all this for present study is the series of devices, fictions, and compromises with reality which this repressed interest made use of while having its way with him and at the same time resisting whatever might force it upon his conscious attention, where a recognition of its significance might result in a deliberate rejection. We shall not go into Freud's ingenious analysis of the mental processes at work here. The following passage is sufficient for our purpose. There is a kind of forgetting which distinguishes itself by the difficulty with which memory is awakened even by strong appeals, as if a subjective resistance struggled against the revival. Such forgetting has received the name of repression in psychopathology. About repression, we can assert that certainly it does not coincide with the destruction, the obliteration of memory. The repressed material cannot of itself break through as memory, but remains potent and effective. 
From this and from what was said in our previous chapter, it is plain that the term unconscious as used in psychology does not mean total absence of psychic activity. It refers to thoughts and feelings which have purposefully been forgotten, to experiences or impulses to which we do not pay attention nor wish to attend to, but which influence us nevertheless. Every one of us, when he dreams, has immediate knowledge of the unconscious as here defined. Certainly we pass into unconsciousness when we sleep. Yet something is questionably going on inside our heads. One wakens and says, What strange or exciting or delightful dreams I have had. Bergson says that sleep is due to the relaxing of the attention into our environment. Yet in dreams, attention is never turned away from ourselves. Possibly, instead of the word unconscious, the term unattended might be used with less danger of confusion. Consciousness is, therefore, not the whole of our psychic activity. Much of our behavior is reflex and automatic. James used to be fond of showing how much even of our higher psychic activity was reflex in its nature. We may be conscious of various portions of our psychic material, but never of it all at once. Attention is like a spotlight thrown on a semi-darkened stage, moving here and there, revealing the figures upon which it is directed, in vivid contrast with the darkly moving objects which animate the regions outside its circle. The speaker, during his discourse, will straighten his tie, make various gestures, and toy with any object which happens to be lying on the desk, all without being aware of his movements, until his attention is called to the fact. Absent-minded persons habitually amuse us by frequently performing complete and rather complex series of actions while wholly oblivious to what they are doing. Everyone can recall numerous instances of absent-mindedness in his own experience. Now all pathological types of mental life have in common this quality of absent-mindedness. And it is held that the thing said or done absent-mindedly has in every instance, even when normal, a meaning which is unconscious. But the unconscious or unattended is by no means confined to the infrequent and the trivial. As temperament or character, its activity is a determining factor in all our thought and conduct. Dream fancies do not really cease when we awake. The dream activity goes on all about our conscious thoughts. Our associations now hovering near long-forgotten memories, now pulled in the direction of some unrecognized bit of personal conceit, now skipping on tiptoe over something forbidden and wicked and passing across without looking in. Only a part of our mental processes ever directly finds expression in our conscious acts and words. The unchosen and the illogical run along with the desired and the logical material. Only we have learned not to pay attention to such things. Under all our logical structures, there flows a ceaseless stream of dream stuff. Our conscious thought is like little planks of attention laid end to end on the stones, which here and there rise above the surface of our thinking. The mind skips across to a desired conclusion, not infrequently getting its feet wet, and on occasion upsetting a plank or slipping off and falling in altogether. We have only to relax our attention a little to enter the world of daydreams, of art, and religion. We can never hold it so rigid as to be wholly rational for long. Those interested in the general psychology of the unconscious are referred to the writings of such authorities in this field as Freud, Jung, Adler, Dr. A. A. Brill, 
Dr. William White. In fact, the literature dealing with psychoanalysis is now so widely read that, unless the reader has received his information about this branch of science from hostile sources alone, it is to be assumed that he has a fairly accurate acquaintance with his general history and theory. We must confine our discussions to those aspects of unconscious behavior which can be shown by analogy, with the psychoneurosis to be determinants of crowd thinking. As the details and technical discussions of psychoanalytical material being strictly to the psychiatric clinic, any attempt at criticism by the medical layman of the scientific processes by which they are established is, of course, impossible. Consequently, I have sought to make use of only those principles which are now so well established as to become rather generally accepted commonplaces of psychopathology. All analysis reveals the fact that the unconscious of the individual is concerned primarily with himself. This is true in the psychosis, and always in dreams. Freud says, Every dream is absolutely egotistical. In every dream the beloved ego appears, even though it be in a disguised form. The wishes that are realized in dreams are regularly the wishes of this ego. It is only a deceptive appearance and interest in another person is thought to have caused the dream. Freud then proceeds to give analyses of several dreams in which the naive egoism of childhood, which lies at the core of the unconscious psyche, is apparently absent, and shows that in each and every case it is there. The hero of our dreams, notwithstanding all appearances to the contrary, is always ourself. Brill, in his book Psychoanalysis, says of the neurosis, Both hysteria and compulsion neurosis belong to the defense neuropsychosis. Their symptoms originate through the psychic mechanism of defense, that is, through the attempt to repress a painful idea which was incompatible with the ego of the patient. There's still another more forceful and more successful form of defense wherein the ego misplaces the incompatible idea with its emotions and acts as though the painful idea had never come to pass. When this occurs, the person merges into a psychosis, which may be called hallucinatory confusion. Thus, the psychoneurosis in all its forms, I believe, regarded as a drama of the ego and its inner conflicts. The egoism of the unconscious belongs alike to the normal and the unadjusted. The mental abnormities appear when the ego seeks to escape some such conflict by means of a closed system of ideas or symbolic acts which will divert attention from the unwelcome psychic material. Adler, in the neurotic constitution, is even, if possible, more emphatic in affirming the egoism of the unconscious as revealed in neurotics. His thesis is that the mainspring of all the efforts of achievement and the source of all the vicissitudes of the psyche is a desire to be important or will to be above, not wholly unlike Nietzsche's theory of the will to power. The neurosis goes back to some organic defect or other cause of childish humiliation. As a result, the cause of such humiliation, a defective bodily organ or whatever it may be, gains special attention. The whole psyche is modified in the process of adjustment. In cases where the psyche remains normal, adjustment is achieved through stimulation to extra effort to overcome the disadvantage, as in the triumph of Demosthenes, Byron, Pope. On the contrary, this disadvantage may result in a fixed feeling of inferiority. Such a feeling may be brought about in the sensitive child by a variety of circumstances. 
physical facts such as smallness of stature, adenoids, derangements of the elementary organs, undersized genitals, homeliness of feature, or any physical deformity or weakness. Again, by such circumstances as domineering parents or older brothers and sisters, the child then thinks always of himself. He forms the habit of comparing himself with others. He creates, as a protection against the recognition of this feeling of inferiority, what Adler calls the masculine protest. The feeling which the individual has of his own inferiority, incompetency, the realization of his smallness, of his weakness, of his uncertainty, thus becomes the appropriate working basis which, because of the intrinsically associated feelings of pleasure and pain, furnishes the inner impulse to advance toward an imaginary goal. In all similar attempts, and the human psyche is full of them, it is the question of the introduction of an unreal and abstract scheme into actual life. No matter from what angle we observe the psychic development of a normal or neurotic person, he is always found ensnared in the meshes of his particular fiction, a fiction from which the neurotic is unable to find his way back to reality, and in which he believes, while the sound and normal person utilizes it for the purpose of reaching a definite goal. The thing which impels us all, and especially the neurotic and the child, to abandon the direct path of induction and deduction and use such devices as the schematic fiction, originates in the feeling of uncertainty and is the craving for security, the final purpose of which is to escape from the feeling of inferiority in order to ascend to the full height of the ego consciousness, to complete manliness, to attain the ideal of being above even our judgments concerning the value of things are determined according to the standard of the imaginary goal, not according to real feelings or pleasurable sensations. That repressed sexuality plays an important part in the conflicts of the ego is well known to all who are acquainted with analytical psychology. According to Freud, the sexual impulse dates from earliest childhood and is an essential element in every stage of self-appreciation. A summary of the process by which the infantile ego develops to maturity is as follows. The child is by nature polymorphous perverse, that is, both physically and psychically he possesses elements which in the mature individual would be considered perversions. Physiologically, what are known as erogenous zones, tissue which is capable of what in mature life is sexual excitation, are diffused through the organism. As the child passes through the latent period of later childhood and adolescence, these erogenous zones are concentrated as it were in the organs which are to serve the purpose of reproduction. If for any reason this process of concentration is checked and remains in later life incomplete, the mature individual will be afflicted by certain tendencies to sex perversion. Similarly, the psychosexual passes through a metamorphosis in normal development. The erotic interest of the child, at first quite without any object at all, is soon attached to one or the other of the parents, then, in the narcissist period, is centered upon the individual himself, after which normally, but not without some storm and stress, it becomes detached and capable of object love, that is, love of a person of the opposite sex. This psychic process is by no means a smooth and easy matter. It is attended at every stage with such dangers that a very large number of people never achieve it entire. 
various kinds of shock and wrong educational influence or overindulgence on the part of the parents may cause the psychosexual interest of the ego or libido to remain fixed at some point in its course. It may retain vestiges of its early undifferentiated stage, appearing then in the perverted forms of masochism, sexual enjoyment of self-torture, or sadism, sexual pleasure in torturing others. Or the libido may remain fixed upon the parent, rendering the individual in some degree incapable of a normal mature love life. He has never quite succeeded in severing his infantile attachment to his mother and transferring his interest to the world of social relations and mature experiences. If he meets with a piece of misfortune, he is likely to seek imaginary security and compensation by a regression of the libido and a revival of childlike affection for the mother image. As this return is, in maturity, unconsciously resisted by the horror of incest, a conflict results. The individual then develops certain mechanisms or complex formations in defense of his ego against the painful situation. The withdrawal of the libido from the ordinary affairs of life renders the latter valueless. Thoughts of death and like compulsory mechanisms ensue. The patient has become a neurotic. Psychoanalysts make much of this latter situation. They term it the Oedipus complex. They assert that in its severer forms, it is a common feature of psychoneurosis, while in less marked form, according to Jung, it underlies and is the real explanation of the birth of tragedy, being also the meaning of much religious symbolism, including the divine drama of Christian tradition. It is not, therefore, only the psychoneurotic whose unconscious takes the form of the Oedipus complex. Under certain conditions, it is manifest in normal people. I have already indicated that the crowd is one of those conditions and shall have something a little more specific to say about this later on. Again, the growing libido may become fixed in the narcissist stage. Between the period of love of parents and object love, the adolescent youth passes through a period when he is in love with himself. The fact that many people remain in some measure fixed in this period of their development is not surprising when we remember that self-feeling occupies a central place in the unconscious at all times. Many of the world's greatest men have doubtless been characters in which there was a slightly more than average fixation at this point. Inordinate ambition is, I should say, an evidence of such a fixation. If one possesses great natural ability, he may, under such circumstances, be able to forge ahead to his goal, overcoming the conflicts which such a fixation always raises, and show no greater evidence of pathology in his career than is seen in the usual saying that genius is always a little queer. A typical crowd leader would, on analysis, I think, show something of this narcissist complex as would doubtless the great run of fanatics, bigots, and doctrinaires, 100% crowd men all. According to Brill, these autoerotic persons are always homosexual, their homosexuality manifesting itself in various ways. The overt manifestations of this tendency are known as perversions. Certain persons who have suppressed or sublimated these tendencies by means of certain defense mechanisms, or fictions, as Adler would call them, get along very well so long as the defense mechanism functions. There are cases when the unconsciously constructed defense breaks down, 
An inner conflict is then precipitated, a marked form of which is the common type of insanity, paranoia. Persons suffering with paranoia are characterized by an insatiable demand for love along with a psychic incapacity to give love. They have an exaggerated sense of their own importance, which is sustained by a wholly unreal but deadly logical system of a priori ideas, which constitute the obsessions common to this type of mentality. The inner conflict becomes external, that is, it is projected. The paranoiac projects his own inner hostility and lack of adjustment upon others. That is, he attributes his own feeling of hostility to someone else, as if he were the object, not the author of his hatred. He imagines that he is persecuted, as the following example will show. The passage here quoted is taken from a pamphlet which was several years ago given to me by the author. He ostensibly wished to enlist my efforts in a campaign he believed himself to be conducting to expose the atrocious treatment of persons like himself, who were imprisoned in asylums as the innocent victims of domestic conspiracy. By way of introducing himself, the author makes it known that he has several times been confined in various hospitals, each time by the design and instigation of his wife. And after stating that on the occasion described, he was very nervous and physically exhausted, and incidentally confessing that he was arrested while attempting homicide, purely in self-defense. He gives this account of his incarceration. I was locked in a cold cell, and being in poor health, my circulation was poor, and the officer ordered me to go to bed, and I obeyed his orders. But I began to get cold, and believing then, as I still believe, that the coffee I got out of the coffee tank for my midnight lunch had been doped, and fearful that the blood in my veins, which began to coagulate, would stop circulating altogether, I got out of bed and walked the floor to and fro all the remainder of the night, and by doing so I saved my life. For had I remained in bed two hours, I would have been a dead man before sunrise next morning. I realized my condition and had the presence of mind to do everything in my power to save my life and put my trust in God and asked his aid in my extremity. But for divine aid, I would not now have the privilege of writing my awful experiences in that hellhole of a jail. The officer who arrested me without any warrant of law and without any unlawful act on my part was the tool of some person or persons who were either paid for their heinous crime or of the landlady of the hotel, he had been a clerk there, who allowed gambling to go on nearly every night and thought I was a detective or spy and so was instrumental in having me thrown into jail. I begged so hard not to be locked in the cell that I was allowed to stay in the corridor in front of the cells. I observed chloral dripping through the roof of the cell house in different places. And as I had some experience with different drugs, I detected the smell of chloral as soon as I entered the cell house. Sometime after midnight, someone stopped up the stovepipe of the door of the coal stove and was left open so that the coal issued from the stove, so that breathing was difficult in the jail. The gases from the stove and other gases poisoned the air, and your humble servant had the presence of mind to tear up a hair mattress and kept my nostrils continually filled with padding out of the mattress. I would often and instantly change the filling in one nostril, and not during the long hours of that awful night did I once open my mouth. In that manner I inhaled very little gases. Why, in my weakened condition and my poor health, anyone wanted to deprive me of my life, I am at a loss to know. But failing to kill me, I was taken after nearly three days of sojourn in that hellhole to the courthouse in blank. But such thoughts as an innocent man in my condition would think, and among criminals of all sorts, 
can better be imagined than described. I thought of Christ's persecutors, and I thought how the innocent suffer because of the wicked. In general, we may say that the various forms of psychoneurosis are characterized by a conflict of the ego with primitive impulses inadequately repressed. In defense against these impulses, which, though active, remain unconsciously so, the individual constructs a fictitious system of ideas, of symbolic acts or bodily symptoms. These systems are attempts to compromise the conflict in the unconscious, and in just the degree that they are demanded for this function, they fail of their function of adjusting the individual to his external world. Thought and behavior thus serve the purpose of compensating for some psychic loss, and of keeping up the individual's self-feeling. Though the unconscious purpose is to enhance the ego consciousness, the mechanisms through which this end is achieved produce through their automatic and stereotyped form a shrinking of personality and a serious lack of adjustment to environment. Now it is not at all the aim of this argument to try to prove that crowds are really insane. Psychoanalysts commonly assert that the difference between the normal and the abnormal is largely one degree and of success in adjustment. We are told that the conflict exists also in normal people, with whom, however, it is adequately repressed and sublimated. That is, normal people pass on out of the stages in which the libido of the neurotic becomes fixed, not by leaving them behind, but by attaching the interests which emerge in such stages to ends which are useful in future experience. The neurotic takes the solitary path of resolving the conflict between his ego and the impulses which society demands shall be repressed. It is altogether conceivable that another path lies open, that of occasional compromise in our mutual demands of one another. The force of repression is then relaxed by an unconscious change in the significance of social ideas. Such a change must, of course, be mutual and unconscious. Compromise mechanisms will again be formed serving a purpose similar to the neurosis. As in the neurosis, thought and action will be compulsory, symbolic, stereotyped, and more or less in conflict with the demands of society as a whole, though functioning in a part of it for certain purposes. Many of the characteristics of the unconscious will then appear and will be similar in some respects to those of neurosis. It is my contention that this is what happens in the crowd, and I will now point out certain phases of crowd behavior which are strikingly analogous to some of the phenomena which have been described above. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.